This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. The legendary biographer Donald Spoto died on February 11, 2023, at the age of 81. Among his works were biographies of Alfred Hitchcock, Marlena Dietrich, Laurence Olivier, the House of Windsor, James Dean, and several others. I had the opportunity to interview Donald Spoto three times. The first time, this time, was on June 18, 1997, and was recorded in the KPFA studios while he was on tour for Notorious, The Life of Ingrid Bergman. Donald Spoto, rather than just talk about the life of Ingrid Bergman, what I'd like to do is talk more about the art of biography and relate it to the book you've written, because I think our our audience is probably more interested in that aspect of what you're doing, as well, certainly, as aspects about the nature of celebrity in America. In that sense, maybe Bergman is kind of a test case for what happens when one becomes a celebrity in America. So I'd like to start by asking you, when you decide you're going to do another book, how do you choose who the person is? And then once you've got your contract, what's the first thing you do? Well, in a prior way, Richard, I have to be gripped in an in inner way by someone's life or their art, uh, the trajectory of their contributions to the arts, if we're dealing with a creative personality, uh, or the drama of their life, something preexistent uh, before I have an idea to do a book about this person has to grip me, as I say, in, in some inner interior way. And then I proceed from there to find out, well, has there been a definitive work on this person? Uh, if there has been work published, how good does it seem to be? How complete? Are there gaps? If it was so long ago, does the life call for a new understanding, for new light to be shed, perhaps? So these are some of the factors that go into being chosen by a subject to do, you know, the work. Well, what do you intend to get out of it for yourself? Say in the Bergman book, what did you gain yourself in writing this book? Well, you never know, of course, until you're finished with it. I had the good fortune to know Ingrid Bergman during, during the last eight years of her life. And I also knew Alfred Hitchcock, who, of course, provided her with three of her great roles and, and her most famous roles. And I knew Hitch as well as Ingrid, and I knew the circle around them. So th it was almost logical for me to consider doing a biography of Ingrid a few years ago. What I gained from it was an enormous respect for the kind of courage and grace under pressure that can be evoked by the ordinary people who happen to be celebrities, and Shirley Ingrid was one of them. In the case of Ingrid Bergman, it's clear that from beginning to, to end, you admired her, you appreciated, you, you liked her. I've talked to people who've worked on biography who frequently find that by the end of the book, they tend to hate the person. Is there any case where you discovered that? No, never. For me, there is always a human factor at work. If you don't 
end the work with great love and devotion, then I presume that you should be able to end the work with understanding and something like compassion for the subject. I can tell you out of the 10 biographies I've written, there are certainly uh, three or four people whom I love more than the others, but I hope that those for whom I don't have the most intimate feelings or the most uh, you know, affective feelings are certainly people whose pain I can understand and whose lives I can respect. What do you think is more important for both the reader and the biographer, the private life or delineating the art, the artistry? I think they go hand in hand, uh, uh, Richard, and you're asking me, in fact, one of the most important questions in doing the lives of, of celebrated people. And one of the things that interests me is the way in which the private life interacts, or to use the over, overworked word today, interfaces, with the public life. In other words, is there an ebb and flow? Is there a resonance? Is there a way in which one's private pains and relationships feed into the public aspect of one's craft, uh, into the performances in the case of an actor, into the plays in the case of a playwright like Williams? Certainly, the, the only raw material a playwright has to use is the experience of his own life, however transmuted that is, however, passed through the prism of a creative imagination, all you have is the raw material of your own inner life. Is there any fact, any event that might happen in someone's life that shouldn't be revealed? I can't think of, of anything. I mean, I can think of many details which are needless to report. I mean, the biographer, I believe, has to be like Chekhov in writing his plays. You have to know more about the character than you tell. I mean, if I told every time Ingrid went out to dinner and every time she had this and the laundry lists, you know, oh, endlessly, sure. there are things that you omit because they're... The, the real art of biography is a question of selection and of, and of emphasis, but I can't think of anything that would have to be repressed or suppressed out of a biography, no. Well, what about the private life of individuals with secret lives? And we're not talking Ingrid Bergman here, mm -hmm. though, of course, you did check to find out, just as the case may be, about whether certain affairs actually happened. Mm -hmm. And in virtually all the cases, they didn't happen in That's your right. estimation. Yes. But... There is the case, for instance, in Laurence Olivier of a, quote, affair with Danny Kay. Yes, I, I, I'm glad you bring that up because I really don't like to use the word affair as if this were a casual little conjunction of the flesh. Uh, Danny Kay and Laurence Olivier were very close friends for many, many years. And for a long period of time, the relationship took a carnal turn. So I wouldn't call it an affair. I mean, it was very important to both of them, and then, and then they were very, very dear to each other. I don't think the biographer has the right to omit something so important to his subject from his life. I think it's very important to demonstrate the truth of that affinity and the truth of their loyalty to each other and the refuge they took from, from their work and from the pressure of family life often in their comfort and their company with one another, that's a very important part of a life, and the biographer dare not omit it. Well, how do you check and double-check facts like that? For example, uh, you mentioned casually in the Ingrid Bergman book about the intimacy between Cary Grant and Randolph Scott. Just one sentence, casually. 
How do you double check that? Perhaps they were just roommates and good friends. Well, that's why I don't use the word sex. I mean, I, I, I pick my words very carefully. What I say at that point is that at this time in his life, Cary Grant's closest intimacy with was, was with his four-day-a-week roommate, Randolph Scott. That's all I say. As a matter of fact, uh, I believe it's been established by the biographers of both of them that the relationship was not just one of housemates. Um, that it was a lot more intimate. Indeed, it was a carnal relationship. But I didn't write a biography of either Cary Grant or Randall Scott, so I didn't go and check any sources. Uh, What I do say is that it's very clear from the record that uh, Mr. Grant and Mr. Scott had a very deep love for one another. Whether that was sexual or not is irrelevant to this book. It's relevant to say that they spent a great deal of time with, with each other, in order to suppress the wild rumors that Ingrid was having an affair with Cary Grant, which indeed she was not. When you're writing a biography and something comes up that distresses you, let us say in this case, uh, we know that uh, Ingrid Bergman flirted, and that's quote-unquote, with the Nazis, okay? And I'm, I'm I'm using the word flirted in the sense that she was Goebbels' favorite. There's a photo in here of uh, her as in, in a kind of Nazi, smiling, pretty face, but she didn't really believe in it. She was just there at the time. Now, let's suppose she did believe in it for a second. Let's suppose you found that out. How do you, as Donald Spoto, the biographer, try to suppress your own inclination to moralize? Uh, you just don't moralize. I mean, you simply don't. I've developed a sort of automatic interior habit of not doing that, of not judging. In the case of Ingrid, the facts are quite clear. No one was less interested in politics. Her time in Germany was well before the war, well before the Holocaust, well before Kristallnacht, well before 1939. She was spending every summer in Europe. Her mother, after all, her late mother was German. Her, she was visiting her aunts and her mother's family every summer in Germany. And she made one picture in Germany, and Goebbels was absolutely besotted with her, and invited her to come to meet with him, which she did not do. And shortly thereafter, she had a summons to Hollywood from David O. Selznick, so it becomes a moot point. You're quite right to refer to the picture, and I have the photograph in there, because she was being groomed by Ufa, the great German film studio, and she was photographed according to the standards of Ufa's photography. So was Marlene Dietrich, so was Zara Leander, so were many people. I mean, they had their own halo of light, their own Valkyrie, you know, romantic German romanticism methods of photographing people. And Ingrid was, was photographed in exactly that way. She was bored by discourses on politics, however. Uh, When you spoke with her, did she ever talk about that era in her life at all? Yes, we talked about her her, uh, making a film in Germany, and she said, you know, had I known later what was brewing, of course, I would have gotten out before I did, but none of us did know. And, of course, in 1937, people didn't know. Fact is, there wasn't a lot to know, you know. There was no, there was no Holocaust going on quite yet. All this was... In, in the brewing, alas. But she said that, you know, had I known what was going on then and what was in the wind, I, I wouldn't have stayed even that long. 
I'd like to switch angles a little bit and talk about celebrity in the United States because I think the story of Bergman, more than most celebrities, was caught up in that because here she was idolized. The, the spin on her life, of course, is that she was the perfect lady. And then all that happened was uh, in a failed marriage. She met someone else and moved in with him. No big deal in 1997. However, at that point, it was. Talk a little about what happened and also your own feelings about the nature of celebrity in America and also one more thing, which is I guess American prudery. Mm. Your, your questions are manifold and very much to the point, and I appreciate them, Richard. First of all, for me, the great obscene four-letter word beginning with F in English is the word fame. I think it is the most deleterious, the most destructive, the most harmful word. Uh, what it requires of people is the, is the most extraordinary kind of moral courage. Why? Because we do, in fact, idolize people. We place them on pedestals only later on to realize as a result of our own best inner promptings that we shouldn't be placing human beings on pedestals, and then we have to tear them down. This is not unrelated to what happened to Ingrid between 1939 and 49. She came to the United States as Europe's biggest star and Sweden's greatest movie star. She's invited by David O. Selznick. She is turned into Hollywood's most admired, most honored and most loved star. That because of her talent, I add. She won an Academy Award for Gaslight. Maxwell Anderson wrote a stage play for her based on her favorite character in history, Joan of Arc, and she won a Tony on Broadway for Joan of Lorraine. And for that 10-year period, she was the most loved person in America. And the studio and Selznick, to whom she was under contract for seven of those 10 years, made book on the fact that here she was, a great star, a lovely lady, had a husband whom she was putting through medical school, had a lovely little child, and didn't have fur coats and jewelry and expensive cars, led a very simple life. Wasn't it wonderful? Well, this terrified Ingrid because she knew that she couldn't live up to the saintliness which they tried to imply after, for example, she played Sister Benedict in The Bells of St. Mary's and after she played Joan of Arc. As she once said to me, you know, the halo that was forced on me quickly became a noose. And she said this with a laugh. Ingrid had a great sense of humor and never took all of this as seriously as her detractors did or her admirers, I might add. But you ask about American prudery. After World War II, it's important to keep in mind the rest of the world had such problems facing them as hunger, unemployment, lack of housing. The hydrogen bomb was, we were told, going to be set off at any minute. The rest of the world was recovering from the horror of World War II in degrees in which the United States never had to cope with this. Suddenly, and it isn't a pretty picture to paint, but we know this from HUAC, from the beginnings of the McCarthy era, suddenly it was the land of the free and the home of the smug. And what happened was that when Ingrid Bergman, in the ashes of a marriage that was over in every way except the formality of a divorce, when she went over to Italy to make a film with the great director Roberto Rossellini, she had every intention of returning two months later to work out the problem of her marriage, to finalize a divorce, to return to her daughter. Well, she fell in love. She found herself pregnant. Some people said to her, well, why don't you go to Switzerland for a weekend and this can be taken care of? 
Her response was, no, Roberto and I love each other. We intend to marry, and I'm going to have his child. Well, when Hollywood found out, she was proclaimed, quote, a powerful influence for moral evil from the floor of the United States Senate, which I've often said ought to know it when it sees it. Secondly, the Women's Clubs of America called for an international boycott of all her films. And I'm sorry and ashamed to say, the churches of America condemned her, as I'm quick to point out, the European churches did not, when one of the highest ranking monsignors in the Vatican was asked his opinion of this scandalous situation. He said, good Italian priest that he was, he said, oh my goodness, look how God has blessed the union, they have a child. I mean, so America's a very different kettle of fish. Were there any Americans who stood up and said, it's none of your damn business? Yes. Uh, happily, people like Alfred Hitchcock, her great friend, and Cary Grant, and a number of other people who knew her were appalled at what was happening at the time and said so. But, of course, their remarks were not so widely reported. Well, how about the studio heads? Were they as craven over Bergman as they later were with HUAC? Yes, they were indeed, Richard. As a matter of fact, Walter Wanger, who produced um, Joan of Arc for her, said, if you do not return and give up this affair, come back and ask pardon and penitence of the whole nation, then your career will be over and you will have only yourself to blame for acting like, like the public sinner that you are. And this, of course, from a man who had just been... Uh, embroiled in one of the most outrageous sexual scandals in the late 40s. So hooray for Hollywood. It's rather strange, given some of the more outrageous scandals, that this should have taken over the front pages and, in fact, shoved the politics of the era, because it was going into, you know, Korea and all of that, off the front pages. It was front page news. Can you imagine such a thing in 1949 and 1950? It was front page news. But of course, then as now, uh, America has a sort of adolescent Puritan attitude towards sex. I don't know if it has to do with this sneaking suspicion ever since the 17th century in America. Most people have this, the, the idea that everybody else is having more and better, and we'd better check up and see what everybody else is doing. And this seems to me to be one of the least attractive of our national traits. I think we have to add very quickly, however, that in the case of Ingrid Bergman, she never had a moment of vengeance or bitterness or anger when she was told you were such a good wife and mother how could you do this wretched thing it's past forgiving her reply was in other words if I was a rotten wife and mother it would be okay you know, I mean, yeah. she really, she was enormous common sense. And she was able to smile and come back With great as soon dignity. as they let her back. Eight years later, when she arrived at New York Airport, the press surrounded her and said, well, are you full of regrets? And instead of getting angry and storming off, which is perhaps exactly what they wanted, she tossed back her honey blonde hair and with a big radiant smile said, no, I don't regret anything at all. The only thing I regret is the things I didn't do. <laughs> Which is a great answer. That's a great reply. Uh, the in, idea that a celebrity's divorce could shove everything else off the front page and later on, for some godforsaken reason, they let her back in and that comes back to the front page as well. It seems strange that, well, maybe not so strange that 
it's give them bread and circuses. It's just throw them throw throw the people a bone about this, and they won't complain about other facts. Well, I think you're putting your finger on something very important. There's a smokescreen effect here, and uh, it also plays, doesn't it, into the desire of people to imagine themselves morally superior to other people. We see the dreadful result of that in our own time. I say constantly when I'm talking about my work that a biographer is obliged to tell the truth even at the risk of saying something good about somebody. That's not fashionable these days. You know, we much we would much rather hear – let me give an example from one of my other books, if I may, Richard. Sure. In my biography of Marilyn Monroe that was published four years ago, to this day, people do not want to hear and will not believe what I proved beyond any shadow of a doubt, namely that Marilyn Monroe and Robert Kennedy were never lovers. This was an invention 10 years after the death of both of them by political enemies. Now, when I went in to research that book, I believed in it because it's become CW. And now I find that it started with this report that the weekend of February 5th, 1962, Robert Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe were shacked up at the Santa Monica Beach House of Peter Lawford. Well, I do a biographer's homework and I go back and I look at the newspaper records. Gee, that's funny. That weekend, Marilyn was at the Calneva Lodge in Lake Tahoe with the man she was about to remarry, Joe DiMaggio. And Robert Kennedy was in Bonn, Germany at an economic conference. So that was my tip-off, and I started to go investigate the other allegations. And what I came up with, to make a long story short, is that Marilyn Monroe and Robert Kennedy met four times in social occasions, always with other people present, and that, frankly, it wasn't in the character of either one of them to walk down the hall and have a little fling. It simply wasn't in the character. People don't want to believe this. I can hear the smiles of some of our listeners. Oh, come on. Why? Because a sexy blonde actress has to be a woman of easy virtue, and a powerful, attractive politician has to have hormones that run rampant. The idea that these could be people who do not live that way asks all of us to examine, well, what are our ideals about people? How do we live? How do, what, I'm, not, I'm not talking from a moralistic point of view. I just mean, are we true to ourselves? And for, to this day, people don't accept it. A biographer, in order to understand, has to do some psycho analysis, some kind of way to get to the root of the artistry or the politics of the individual that they're talking with. There is a a biographer named Joan Pizer who tried to pull that with uh, Leonard Bernstein and with uh, George Gershwin, to my mind, to fairly disastrous results. At what point do you as a biographer feel you have to stop? Stop what? Stop Analyzing. Ah, good. I'm glad I pushed you for the word. Because for, to, for me, Richard, analysis is fine as far as it goes, but it doesn't go nearly far enough. When you analyze, you break things up into their little component parts. And you learn how they're put together. Well, then what? Once you've learned about childhood trauma, then what? 
I mean, everybody's a little traumatized in childhood. What do we do with this? Some people become battered forever. Some people are shattered interiorly beyond redemption. Others turn it into strength and move forward, like Ingrid, whose mother died when she was two and her father died when she was 12 and she was shuttled off to live with a maiden aunt who six months later dropped down dead in Ingrid's arms. Instead of becoming a withdrawn, bitter, sour, neurotic teenage girl, she found she had a talent for memorization and mimicry and the theater and turned it into a great art and used that courage and that resourcefulness not only later on to confront the horror of 1949, but also the last eight years in her ravaged battle with cancer that finally took her life at such a young age. And so to answer your question, I don't think the task of the biographer is to be a psychoanalyst or an analyst of any sort, to understand, yes, to go very deeply into the inner life of someone. Of course, how else do we li- where else do we live except interiorly? Otherwise, you wind up with a, an almanac entry. She was born here. She made this movie. She went there. She married this man, and then she died. That's not a biography. A biography is literally graphine beyond to write the life. Our life is lived in our inner reactions to things, in our inner impulses, our, our, the things that are evoked from our experience, what happens to us, how we react to it. Is it fair then, if you're going to do that, to do it about a person who's still alive, to give an example, say, Elizabeth Taylor? It's a very important question you ask, Richard. I myself feel with the exception of Elizabeth Taylor, have never undertaken the life of someone living for the very simple reason the story isn't over. I chose to do Miss Taylor's biography because I believe that her life is very much her life as a performer, and her life as a performer is over by her own admission. So because I see her as the, the sort of palimpsest, if you will, the, the representative of, of the person who's groomed for stardom from the age of eight, and then her career is over, and in a very real way, her identity, you know, her public identity surely is finished then. I chose to do that biography. But ordinarily, you're quite right. The story isn't finished, so I don't choose to do the, the lives of living people. Well, when you do that, how does the living person respond? Because we know, for example, that you're going to get stuff wrong. It's, it's got to happen. I can only tell you this. When I began the book, of course, I wrote to Miss Taylor and asked for, for an interview. And I received a reply that she doesn't give interviews. But there, were, there was no attempt made to stop me, um, perhaps because I hope, I would like to hope, that Miss Taylor had known my previous work and knew she was going to get a fair and truthful telling. We now skip to a couple of years later when the book was published, and a friend we have in common Uh, I happened to run into at a restaurant, and he came up to me and said, um, oh, I have a message for you from Elizabeth. And I thought, "Uh uh-oh. And he said, two words. And then I thought, really, Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And he said, Elizabeth says, thank you. Now, I didn't prettify or glamorize anything. Uh, In Miss Taylor's favor, what we must say is that throughout her life, she has never resented or tried to squash the truth. What she's resented is lies. I didn't tell any lies. What happens when you've written a biography, let us say Marlena Dietrich, or in this case, Ingrid Bergman, and then shortly thereafter, a book appears? In the case of Marlena, Marlena, of course, 
the Maria Riva book, in this case, Isabella Rossellini's book. Where do the facts diverge, and how do you deal with that internally as a biographer? I don't have any problem dealing with it internally, maybe because I feel, Richard, that no biographer ever has the last word, and uh, the last word can perhaps only be uttered by God. But let's put it this way, in the examples you give, uh, Maria Riva gave her own take on Marlena Dietrich as her mother. I gave the, the complete biography of an actress and told and researched about many events that Miss Riva couldn't never have known. In the case of Isabella Rossellini, one of Miss Bergman's children, she herself is the first one to say that her little book is nothing like a biography of her mother. It's just a series of little reflections and memories about Isabella's own life and her marriages and her boyfriends and her memories of her parents and her work as a model and an actress. So... It's, it's, it's neither a threat nor a competition for me, and I can only wish other writers on the subject well. Completely changing the subject. You have done a number of books about actors. Can you teach acting? You being, can anyone teach acting? Probably not, to tell you the truth, Richard. I don't think anyone can teach writing either. I think what you can do is possibly recognize the talent where it is, and uh, put the blossom in a garden that is fruitful and water it and tend it and nurture it, but you can't create that kind of talent. No, I quite agree with you. Who is the most interesting person you've ever written a biography of? Oh, oh, golly, I can't answer that. I mean, because each of them in their own way is. I can tell you that there are, among my ten biographies, there are four or five people who have enduring interest for me and whose work continues to move and touch me, and I feel very close to them, and that would be Alfred Hitchcock, Tennessee Williams, Laurence Olivier, Marilyn Monroe, and, and Ingrid Bergman. But I have to say that, you know, I, I, I couldn't pick just one. There's a point in Notorious, The Life of Ingrid Bergman, where uh, there's a very curious setting where she talks with someone who I suspect is you. Is that the case? I did know her very well in the last eight years of her life, and I quote our, our many interviews together. And when I do that, I refer to a writer who was preparing a book exactly. on Hitchcock. And if you look at the end notes, it says <laughs> the writer was DS, my initials. <laughs> so, um, but I, I feel it's very important never to suddenly turn a narrative into a first person account, I, this. It's not a magazine article, it's a book, and I feel I really have to disappear and remain as anonymous as possible. When you do a book about somebody in film or, you know, Tennessee Williams, you read all of the material and you see all of the films, correct? Oh, more than once. Absolutely. In the case of Tennessee Williams, you read all of his plays, published and unpublished, all of his diaries, all of his memoirs, all of his poems, all of his short stories, every magazine and newspaper article ever written about him in every language you can manage. In the case of Ingrid, all of her films made in, and by the way, it's important to point this out, I think, Richard, no other actor in history mastered stage, screen, and television in five languages, Swedish, English, German, French, and Italian. No slouch, this woman. Um, you see all of her films. You, you get kinescopes of her TV appearances. You read everything you can about her stage appearances. 
every magazine article ever published in her native language you have translated. Swedish is not my strong suit. Yes, you, that's part of the basic equipment, part of the homework. What about double-checking facts? Do you make sure every fact has at least two sources? Well, if I mean, it depends on what, uh, in what gravity or importance has a fact. I mean, if it's she arrived in America on March 4th, 1939, well, if the newspapers say she oh, arrived sure, in March. Yeah. Uh, if it's something really uh, marked in a person's life, You've got to have multiple attestation, of course, and that you have not only from the press, but you have that from interviews as well. A lot of uh, writers these days move in the realm of, I don't know what you'd call it, fact-slash-fiction, where they create quotes, they create internal dialogue. I notice you don't do that. How do you feel about that entire trend in journalism? It makes me furious. Um, I read so-called biographies in which uh, they break into pages and pages of dialogue, and I look in vain at the back for end notes. Was there a tape recorder in the room? Usually I want to ask, was there a tape recorder under the bed? Because it's funny in these biographies how all of a sudden these conversations occur in the most intimate moments. I don't think it's the province ever of the biographer to invent. To imagine, you bet. The imagination is a powerful, necessary force here to enable the events and the truth to come to life. But to fabricate, never. An unattested um, you know, dialogue is simply, to me, unconscionable for a biographer historian. Have you ever thought of writing fiction? Yes, I have written fiction, in fact. And? Has Uh, it been published? No, it hasn't been published. (laughs) And when I reread it from time to time, I see why. I think for a writer, you come to a point where you accept what your gift is. And I am very fortunate to have found a place in American uh, life as, as a biographer. And I'm enormously grateful for that. I think it's a very different gift from that of the fiction writer. Uh, Now, I'm a mere 56, but uh, who can tell what will happen 10 or 20 years from now? What do you think is the chief characteristic between a good biography and a bad one? I think a respect for life, not just the life of the individual, but the, the author's respect for the life of the subject and the author's respect for the reader. You never have to tell the reader what the reader already knows, which is why, for example, I deplore needless bedroom details. You know, we all know the repertory is rather limited. So I think what you have to do is is have a respect for the reader as well as for the subject and the modest goal of telling a good story gently and justly and truthfully with an attitude and with the mindset that you hope the reader at the end of the book will say, yes, not all of life is like this, but some of life is like this. And I know what the author meant, and I feel what he meant. And that's really all you can hope for. Do you feel that by doing all these biographies, maybe in some sense you're teaching people American history? I mean, certainly here, we see the broad scope from 
World War II through to the blacklist and how it affected several people. Yeah, it's not a conscious goal I have, although I was a teacher for more than 25 years. It's, it's never a conscious goal, but I think everything does have a historical context. And I think lives have to be placed in that historical context. Ingrid Bergman wasn't born in the 17th century, nor was she born in Hollywood in 1950. She was born in Sweden at the height of World War I. And that is a context that has to be very carefully mined. So it's important for me to understand the arc of history. And therefore, if I'm going to present the life fully, it's important for the reader to understand that context too. One question about Bergman. Okay, you met her, you knew her over eight years. What was she really like? In person, my memories of her are of a woman who was so vital, so full of life, even when she was ravaged by illness. She had a great sense of humor. She loved to go to a party and talk about what was going on in the world and in the arts. She was as interested in you as you were in her. She was a caring woman. Uh, she was a truthful woman. Her nearest and dearest, as well as people who worked with her just professionally, said, you know something about Ingrid? She never told a lie. She was always truthful. And I think that about sums up the kind of, of character she had. That's what she was like. All of this within the great, beautiful envelope of an extraordinary, blazing, radiant talent. I mean, really, she could do no wrong. Even when the material was beneath her, she found the gold amid the dross. She passed it through the prism of her own creative imagination, and what emerged was a truthful character. And according to this book, at least her greatest performance was Autumn Sonata. Well, I think Autumn Sonata is a great performance indeed. I also think notorious, and there are three reasons why I chose that word for the title of the book, obviously, but certainly her performance for Hitchcock in Notorious is brilliant, as is her, her performance in Anastasia and Gaslight, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. She tears your heart out. Her last uh, performance of all was the four-hour television miniseries as Golda in which she was, she was heartbreakingly wonderful when she was dying of cancer, doing this role and in pain every single day. I was talking uh, with Dick Lupoff, and I spoke with Leonard Nimoy about that a oh. little bit, and he couldn't say enough kind things about her. He said she was an extraordinary lady. She really was. It was a privilege to know her, and I'll tell you the truth, it was a privilege to write her life. What next for Donald Spoto? You have another bio uh, that you're busy working on now? Many of my readers will perhaps be surprised and say I'm taking a new turn in my career. Actually not. But um, I'm, in a sense, coming out of the closet in a very important way. I am by training a theologian. I took a Ph.D. in theology with a concentration in a biblical Greek and I was a professor of theology for more than 25 years. This we've never spoken about in the press or advertised because it hasn't seemed immediately relevant to talking about James Dean or Alfred Hitchcock or Ingrid Bergman. But to answer your question, my next book is going to be a series of uh, meditations on the life of Jesus of Nazareth, uh, told from the viewpoint of a biographer 
who has the scholarly background and the equipment of ancient languages and history and archaeology, but who's writing for the general reader, not for the academic, not for the scholar, not for the PhD student, not necessarily for the believer or the unbeliever, but for someone who wants to have just another look at this life which changed the course of history and continues, according to some, to do so. You've been listening to an interview with biographer Donald Spoto, who died on February 11, 2023, at the age of 81. This first of three interviews was conducted while he was on tour for Notorious, The Life of Ingrid Bergman, on June 18, 1997. The second interview was recorded a year later for The Hidden Jesus, A New Life, and the third and final interview was recorded in 2000 for Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis, A Life. Later biographies focused on Francis of Assisi, Alan Bates, Grace Kelly, and the Redgraves. His final biography, published in 2016, was focused on the life of actress Teresa Wright. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>